May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my God, my Redeemer. Amen. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has a tendency to not only speak in parables, but to speak in paradox. In this chapter alone, Jesus says things such as, I send you as a sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents, but be as harmless as doves. What's done in the dark will come out into the light. And don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who could destroy the body and the soul in hell. Acknowledge me and I will acknowledge you in heaven. With these many paradoxical statements within this chapter, it's kind of hard to find a place to focus. But I think I would be giving a disservice to the text if I did not focus on the unpopular concept of heaven and hell. Since Richmond Hill is a Christian ecumenical community with different people and different beliefs from different denominations, we have different views on heaven and hell. Some people see hell as a literal place, others see it as figurative or metaphorical. Personally, for me, I don't see hell as being some place that a loving God sends people who don't believe or who are bad people to be tortured for eternity in fire. But I must admit that Jesus makes it quite clear throughout the Gospels and the writers of the New Testament make it clear that in the end, God is the ultimate distributor of justice in this life and whatever is to come after it. In almost every major religion, there is some concept of divine judgment. In the ancient Egyptian religion, they have the concept of the feather of Ma'at. In Buddhism, they have the doctrine of reincarnation. And in Islam, they have the day of judgment. Our ancestors suspected that there might be something beyond this world that will inevitably hold us accountable for our actions in this life or in the next. It's also interesting that it is usually the people who have the most education and the most money who don't necessarily believe in the afterlife. However, if you have had a hard time in this lifetime, be it through oppression or poverty, then sometimes all you have is hope that there must be something better than this. Which makes the words of Jesus, blessed is the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God, all the more poignant. There is a paradoxical statement in this chapter that I'd like to focus on besides that of heaven and hell. Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but I come to bring a sword. What does it mean when the Prince of Peace is saying, I have not come to bring peace? In order to explore this conundrum, we have to look at the chapter in context. This is the commissioning of the 12 disciples. They are being authorized and equipped by Jesus to spread the gospel throughout Israel. The Bible doesn't tell us much about all of the apostles, but we do know about some of them. They come from different places in life and have different worldviews. Peter and his brother Andrew are fishermen, so is John and James, and they made their living by the sea. But then it gets interesting. We have Judas, who is a treasurer, but he's also a thief. We have Simon the Zealot, who has political and revolutionary agendas to overthrow the Roman Empire. And then there is Matthew, who is the opposite of Simon because he's a tax collector. And tax collectors were actually shunned by Jewish people. They were seen as traitors to their own race, aligning themselves with the Roman interests. 
So we see that Jesus has assembled a group of folk who do not seem to have the same political ideology nor the same ethical compass. However, in spite of their differences, Jesus is able to bring them together as his followers and then he tells them what is required of them if they are to be his followers. Back then, if you were Jewish, you were waiting for the Messiah, this tremendous human leader who was going to unite the tribes of Israel and usher in world peace. So for the apostles to follow Jesus, this random guy from Nazareth who was from the ghetto or from the backwoods of Nazareth, claiming to be the son of God, would have been seen as scandalous. It would have brought shame to their family. Jesus was seen as some sort of madman or a cult leader leading people into the desert with his radical teachings. Perhaps that's why he said he knew that they were going to be arrested and persecuted for their faith. Following Jesus back then was a major risk. But to be honest, we don't necessarily have to look to ancient times to understand what this means, because right now in places like China, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Somalia, there are Christians that are still being persecuted for their faith that could either be arrested or even killed. So the paradox is even though people around the world, poor people of color, are Christians in America, we are Christians, but we have a different type of Christianity. In America, our Christianity seems to be a lackadaisical faith that doesn't really require a lot of sacrifice, but merely the right set of beliefs. In other words, if I believe in Jesus, then that's good enough. And on top of that, when we have preachers who are refusing to preach the truth from their pulpits around issues like racism, then the church becomes embedded into the dominant culture. And when the church is embedded into the dominant culture, then it becomes a machine for the state. Once it is a machine for the state, then the church can no longer tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong. And instead of God providing the foundation for ethics and morality, people look to Fox News or MSNBC or Facebook to determine what is right and what is wrong. We must be aware of a Christian or in a Christianity that is sanctioned by the state. It doesn't matter if it is a fascist, overt, racist, dominant agenda, which is what we have today, or a more covert, racist, neoliberal oligarchy, which simply means free market ran by very wealthy people. Anytime you go against the precepts of the state or the empire, then you can expect that your crucifixion will be right around the corner. This is true for Jesus, it was true for the apostles, it was true for Joan of Arc, it was true for Martin Luther King, and if we are true to the gospel, then it will be true for us. I find it puzzling that there are Christians who think that with poor people, Christians, poor people of color, all across the world who are dying, and now even dying more because of COVID-19, and with people marching for justice all across America, all across the world, that we could sit idly by in the comfort of our Christianity and think that we have the good life now, and if there's a life after, we'll have the good life then. 
The problem with thinking with this concept or this worldview is you will find no scriptural basis for this within the Gospels. Rather, when we look to the Gospels, we hear Jesus saying things like, to whom much is given, much is due. Woe to you who are rich, you have had your time of happiness. Woe to you who are well fed now, you will go hungry. We hear Jesus saying, alas you Pharisees who pay your tithe, but care nothing for justice and the love of God. We hear Jesus saying in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. These are scriptures that we gloss over and we don't like to focus on because they make us uncomfortable, and rightfully so. These scriptures were used for centuries to literally, literally scare the hell out of people. It was used to manipulate and abuse people, to control people. But in our effort to re-correct that wrong, we can't go in the other direction where we simply just don't focus on sermons or preachings or scriptures that make us feel uncomfortable. And I'm not into fear-mongering, that's not my hope. Rather, I'm into truth-telling, and the truth is there are millions and millions and millions of people probably not watching this who are already living in hell. And I believe that Jesus is asking, what will we do? I believe there are two types of followers when I read the scriptures. There are those who showed up for the miracles. They went to see Jesus perform miracles, heal the sick, feed the hungry. Maybe they even ate when he fed the 5,000. But after they got what they needed, after the show was over, then they went back to their homes, business as usual. But there were other types of disciples. The disciples who followed Jesus and risked everything they had, their jobs, their social status, They turned their back on the empire and they even lost their religion, which is why we have Christianity. It's not exactly Judaism, but it's close enough. And the reason they left it, one of the reasons, is because their original religion was too based on one ethnic group. They risked their family and they risked their friends and many of the early Christians risked their lives. What are you willing to risk when Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, take up your cross and follow me. Some might say this is a radical sermon, a radical thing that you're saying, but even Martin Luther King said, he who is not willing to die for something is not fit to live. The reason it's easy for me to follow Jesus no matter what it takes to love other folk and to bring about justice in this unjust world is because from a very young age, black men are taught that we could die at any moment. All of my friends who are black, my male friends and even some of my female friends are very happy to reach the age of 21. Not because they necessarily lived in the inner city. That's just how it is in the community. And even now with COVID-19, yet again, we find ourselves being on the front line of those 
who might perish first as opposed to people who are not people of color? What are you willing to risk today to follow Jesus? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.